Well, good morning. Welcome to Cornerstone Bible Church. If you're a visitor, we're glad to have you with us. I want to remind everybody and then encourage everybody also uh, to attend uh, Sunday school uh, in the hour between. Uh, You would be greatly blessed and encouraged, uh, and the men who teach would be greatly blessed and encouraged by your presence. It's always good when you work hard all week and people come and share the joy of discovery uh, with you when you're the teacher. So make sure you do that, all right? It's also time for fellowship, and uh, I continue to ask you to pray for our building needs that the Lord would direct uh, as He would see fit, that we might all get back together in the same room at some time, Lord willing. All right, now I want to say something before we get started uh, in uh, our study this morning, and uh, I just really feel I need to address uh, an issue that uh, many of you probably are already aware of. You see the headlines or hear the headlines uh, in the news of a spiritual revival that has uh, broken out in a Christian university, Christian campuses, seemingly began in uh, Kentucky, a Christian university there, and has moved from various to various other campuses and universities uh, around the country. And, and we praise the Lord when He works uh, in a variety of different fashions, but I just really feel I need to uh, bring just a bit of a word of caution and advice that any time there are these uh, uh, supposed outpourings of the Holy Spirit, uh, so-called special movements of the Holy Spirit, revivals, as many people are uh, labeling this, uh, there tends to be a lot of focus on emotional uh, experiences. Uh, there tends to be a lot of anecdotal incidences or anecdotal references, again, to the supposed moving of the Holy Spirit. People crying, people feeling emotional, hugging, uh, these kind of experiential approaches to Christianity or ecstatic um, experiences, visions, etc., and so forth. And uh, honest truth is, um, I'm not making any judgment on any of those kind of things because I- anytime you get into the subjective and you try to evaluate somebody else's experience, you just stepped into a bee's nest of trouble, and I realize that, right? So I- I'm cautious a- as I go forward. But let me just say to you a few things very quickly. The Bible never makes any connection between people's subjective experiences and a true working of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say that twice. The Bible never makes any connection between people's subjective experiences and a true working of the Holy Spirit. The Bible does say there are tests of true spirituality, and one of the tests of true spirituality is that you're filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. That means that you're being led moment by moment by Him, and you're being led by Him through His Word. Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. The Bible does say that every genuine believer already is indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit and already indwelt by the person of Jesus Christ. Romans 8 verse 9 says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. The Bible does say in Galatians 5.16, that we are to walk by the Spirit and you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. Now the Bible says there are outward evidences of the Spirit working. There are outward evidences of the Spirit working internally in the life of the believer, and it's called the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, as it says in Galatians 5.22 and forward. But as you go through that list, there's nothing in there about emotionalism. There's nothing in there about tears or crying. 
We've been studying for quite a while now in the Gospel of John uh, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ, John 16, verse 13. When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative, but whenever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify Me, for He shall take of Mine and shall disclose it to you. So how do you know the Holy Spirit is truly at work? Answer, the Holy Spirit always points to the truth, and the Holy Spirit always points to the person of Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit is always glorifying Christ. Nothing in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in that John 16 passage that I just read has anything that suggests subjective experiences are a way to validate the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit points to Christ. And when the Holy Spirit is working, He points to Christ. And there'll be a tremendous amount of Christ in the room, in the discussion. I read the psalm uh, intentionally in uh, Psalm 85 this morning because in that psalm, the psalmist is asking for revival. And you can go back and look at that on your own later. But will you not revive us again? And then he says, loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth springs from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. When the Holy Spirit is at work, he is always pointing people to truth. And he's always pointing people to the spirit of truth, that, uh, to, the, to the person of truth. And that person of truth, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is found in the word of truth. Right? And the Word of God leads us again to the person of Christ, which leads us to righteousness because Jesus Christ is the righteous one. Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, verse 27, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You'll be careful to observe all my ordinances. So when the work of the Holy Spirit is, is truly evident, a true test of spirituality, again, is not some kind of a static emotional experience. It's not some kind of vision or whatever. It's obedience to the Word of God. It's walking in God's truth, keeping His ordinance. Verse 31 of Ezekiel 36. Then you will remember your evil ways, your deeds that were not good. You will loathe yourself in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. So if the Holy Spirit's truly working, then there's going to be a turning away from sin. A pursuit of truth, a pursuit of righteousness. There's going to be a repentance of sin. There's going to be a desire for personal holiness. And again, a pursuit of the truth. That's, the, that's a working of the Holy Spirit. A deep anxiety over sin. A deep love for the person of Christ. So I just want to give a warning about being very careful about subjective experiences. Emotional experiences. We need to focus on the truth, on the Word of God. As a matter of fact, uh, Peter, James, and John, you might remember, they had quite an experience one time. When they were on the Mount of Transfiguration... They even heard the audible voice of God. But instead of speaking, uh, focusing on the experience, Peter said, we have a pro- the prophetic word made more sure, which you do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises. 2 Peter 1 verse 19. They were saying that the word of God is more valuable than some experience, more valuable than even hearing uh, the, the audible voice of God and seeing Christ transfigured. We have the word, the sure word. Now, so I'm just saying it's not always easy to tell, right? With all these subjective experiences, uh, again, you can tell 
from what the Bible says uh, is the work of the Holy Spirit. 1 John 4, 1 uh, through 7, I'll let you read it later this afternoon, but just verse 1 of that passage says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And as you work your way through that text, John lays out a a number of um, ways that you can tell. And, And I'll just give you the headings. He says, you can tell it's really the work of the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God, again, exalts and glorifies Christ. And the Spirit of God, you can tell, is at work because he, is, uh, uh, he operates against the interests of Satan's kingdom and against sin and against, against worldly lusts. You can tell the Holy Spirit is at work because, again, he points people to Scripture, to the truth. He, he elevates uh, the truth. Uh, and you can tell the work of the Holy Spirit because, again, it results in a love for God and a love for others of God's people, uh, for, for God's own. So I, I'm just giving a, a, warn of, uh, a word of caution. Be very careful. Evaluate everything by the Word of God. Now, if you want to have, without question, a 100% Spirit-verified experience of 100% experience of the Holy Spirit right now. Take your Bible and open to John 17. That's where you'll get it. Amen. John 17. And and since this is a start of a new chapter, I'm going to read it in total. I, I don't always do that, but every once in a while, and I thought I should do that here. John 17, starting in verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you've given him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours and have given them to me, or you have given them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything that you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as uh, we are. And while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them has perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves." I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. 
I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of those alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word, that they may, be, uh, they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfect, perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, uh, who, uh, that they also whom you have given me, be with, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I know you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them." Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we're thankful for an opportunity now to study uh, your word, and we do pray, Lord, that you guide us and, and direct us in that endeavor. And, and we thank you for the great, uh, the great privilege of knowing you and, and, and for the great mercy of leaving for us this wonderful prayer of Christ that we may uh, learn and study and uh, grow in our love for you and for our Savior. And we pray to that end uh, that that would happen through our study. Guide us this next hour. We pray in Christ's name, uh, Amen. Well, here in our uh, un, uh, in our ongoing study here in the, the Gospel of John, obviously we're in the seventeenth chapter, uh, which has been described by many as unparalleled in all of the Scripture, the most unique uh, chapter in the entirety of the Bible. It's the Lord's Prayer, the the Lord our, our, the Lord Jesus Christ praying to His Father. Uh, in this chapter, really, the veil is drawn back, as it were, and we're really escorted into the Holy of Holies. Uh, we approach with Christ the very throne of God into the inner chamber of the uh, of the secret place of the tabernacle of the Most High. And we have the opportunity uh, to hear the Lord Jesus Christ address uh, this very long prayer to his Father. Uh, many have said when you come to this chapter, historically many have said that we need to remove our shoes here. We need to remove our shoes here, listen carefully, humble ourselves with reverent hearts because we are in the most holy ground. And it's an apt uh, illustration, an apt picture. Ever since we began our study in the book of John, personally, I have been, there are certain chapters I've been looking forward in advance to studying. Uh, this is one that's been top on my, on my list. Uh, I, I've been really excited to get to the 17th chapter and then work our way through and, and learn the things that the Lord has left for us so that we might all grow in our gr- greater understanding of the Lord and greater understanding of our, our uh, Savior and then our love for them both would, would grow. Many accolades have, uh, concerning this portion of Scripture have been put forth throughout uh, the years. For example, one of the great reformers, Philip Melanchthon, who, who lectured on this chapter at the, last, the very last lecture of his life, he said this, There is no voice which has ever been heard, neither in heaven nor in the earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered by the Son of God himself. 
Matthew Henry said of it in of John 17, he said it's the greatest prayer that was ever offered on earth that followed the greatest sermon that was ever preached on the earth. So John 17 is a special chapter, and John 17 really has been used in the history of the church by God in many powerful ways with his people. Uh, one very notable example would be John Knox, who is the uh, great uh, Protestant leader out of the, uh, out of the uh, uh, Reformation there in Scotland, a, a mighty man of God that God used uh, greatly. It was during his last days when he realized that he was about to die that he asked his wife to read to him John 17 because that was the, actually the portion of the Scripture that in part opened John Knox's eyes to the truth of the gospel and the truth of Christ. So it was fitting that the last words that his ears would hear uh, here on earth before he passed from time into eternity would be this beloved John chapter 17. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a hero of mine in the faith, uh, uh, offers this concerning uh, chapter 17. He says, It is one of the richest and most sublime statements to be found anywhere, even in the scriptures themselves. And there is a sense in which one preaches it with fear and trembling, lest one may in any way detract from its greatness and from its value. There have been those in the past who have felt that we were dealing with something which is so sacred because of it, uh, because it is the very opening into our, own, our Lord's own heart that the only right thing to do with the prayer is, read it, is to read it. And it's interesting, there have been a number of people in history who have said that. We shouldn't even preach on it, we should just read it. And because it's, it's such a high and lifted up a holy spot, if you will. Lloyd-Jones goes on and says, Yet it seems to me that that is a mistake, for I would argue that our Lord would never have uttered the prayer audibly unless he had intended that we should hear it and that we should uh, be able to study it, and above all, that we should be able to grasp its teaching. He did not merely pray to God, he said. He prayed audibly to God, and the disciples heard him, and thus the prayer was preserved. And it seems to me that we have a wonderful illustration of the kindness of our Lord in allowing his disciples to hear this prayer and arranging it that it should be recorded in this way, close quote. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 48 sermons on these 26 verses. Now, lest you should faint, (laughs) I won't spend quite that much time here, but we'll spend a little bit of time. It's just a tremendous portion of Scripture. John MacArthur says this, concerning this chapter, he says it deserves careful attention. In all honesty, one would be lost for a lifetime in this chapter. The truths are so far-reaching, so high, so wide, so deep, so elevated, that it's almost impossible to extract yourself from the chapter or from any verse or even any phrase. The words are simple enough and direct enough, but the truths are really beyond comprehension. The best we can do is touch its edges, uh, uh, touch the edges of these great realities that are found here in this chapter. So again, there's a lot of excitement when you come to John 17. There's a lot of excitement historically, a lot of excitement for me personally when you come to the chapter. So I think we need to consider carefully the words that the Lord has left for us here to, to think as we have this wonderful truths found in this chapter that are going to help us see, I think, more clearly Christ, but more important, or as important, more clearly our relationship to the person of Christ, our position in Christ. I've said to us numerous times from the pulpit, I think one of the great problems we all suffer from, and that's all of us, uh, on a personal level, is we're all, we are all far too subjective. Uh, we, we tend to focus too much on us, our issues, our troubles, our anxieties, our unhappiness. And, and I think, in part, we tend to focus so much on us because we fail to realize all the wonderful things that God has provided for us in Christ. Now, Peter said in Second Peter 1, 3, that we have been granted in Christ everything pertaining to life and godliness. And, and that theme is a repeated theme throughout the entirety of the New Testament. 
So there's no conceivable condition, no conceivable situation that we are not adequately equipped for by God's divine kindness and God's divine grace in the person of Jesus Christ. So when we find ourselves feeling defeated and we find ourselves feeling kind of overwhelmed or overly concerned about the future, when we start focusing again too much on ourselves, our failures, our troubles, our anxious hearts, uh, it's, it's because we fail to look up. We, we fail to look up and realize the great salvation that God has provided for us in Christ. So I think we would all do well and be well served to listen carefully to what Christ has to say to his Father concerning us and, and his love for us. And we would be greatly encouraged, I think, by the great, wonderful truths uh, that are found in this wonderful prayer of Christ uh, to his Father. Now again, let me remind you a little of the context. We've gone over this a number of times, but you remember that the Lord is praying this prayer audibly in, in the hearing of this group of men who he loves uh, to the end, right? To the greatest extent of divine love. Uh, John thirteen one, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. It's the same group of men that he's been constantly trying to encourage uh, because he's about to depart from them. And they were about to face some challenging trials. It's to these very same men, he said in John chapter 14, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. Right? Believe in God, believe also in me. And then he began to unfold to them all these wonderful truths, all these doctrines that we've been studying for many months now, starting all the way back in chapter, uh, chapter 13. Uh, this is one evening starting in chapter, chronologically, if you put it on the clock, chapter 13 down here through chapter 17. 17, we're working towards morning, but this is basically one hour. And I think we've spent six or seven months on it, right? So he's given them a lot of information that we've been kind of unpacking for a long period of time. But again, he just keeps demonstrating to them his love, uh, or speaking to them of his love and then demonstrating it. He, He humbled himself. You remember when he washed their feet? Kind of a picture, I think, of the coming humiliation that he is going to offer when he comes to be that sacrifice to die for them on the cross. He's warned them. He's encouraged them. He's tried to prepare them. He spoke to them about the reality of heaven. He said that I'm going to go. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back. And then you're going to come and be with me forever. He's spoken to them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And several times in the Old Testament, we see different prophets speaking of the day when the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out with power, but no one that I'm aware of in the, Holy, in the Old Testament connected it with the, the ministry of Christ. And Christ is saying, now it's about to happen. Uh, the disciples were told that, by, that Jesus himself, that he would send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit would be in them and work through them, and, and he would be their comforter, and, and he would be the one who would lead them into all the truth. And, and that the works that they would perform that God left for them to do uh, that would be even when you compared them to the work of Christ in John chapter 14, Christ said they're going to even be greater works than the works that I did. Truly, truly, I say to you that he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Chapter 15, he sp- spoke to them about uh, commissioning them for fruitful service. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. I mean, that's tremendous and tremendously encouraging just on its own, but you did not choose me, but I chose you. That's comforting words, is it not? In times of difficulty, in times of trial. You did not choose me, but I chose you. We have a genuine relationship, a saving relationship with the living God through Christ. You didn't choose me, I chose you. 
Again, it repeats to them the great wonderful truths about prayer. Uh, 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, I will do that my Father may be glorified in the Son. Ask anything in my name, I'll do it. John 15, if you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. John 16, 24, until now you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. Just tremendous truth. And then, of course, he told them of his departure. He was going back to the Father, and that caused them great sorrow. He told them there was also going to come a time of intense sadness for them, but rejoicing by the world. He said, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. He promised them that the very same event that would cause their grief would be the very same event that would lead to their eternal joy. And of course, he's speaking about the events concerning the cross. The fact that he would be betrayed, he'd be arrested, he'd be abandoned, falsely accused, and during a mock trial, beaten, uh, scourged, and then crucified. And again, just one short week earlier, remember the crowds had hailed him as the, as the coming king. They, they laid down their coats and they laid down palm branches before him and they shouted to him or greeted him with shouts of Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest as the Lord enters into the city of Jerusalem. But by the end of the week, they're crying out, crucify him. Crucify him. I mean, things have changed dramatically in a week and the, the disciples' hopes have uh, turned towards utter despair. And then the events of the cross unfold, and obviously the, the disciples uh, don't understand at the cross that three days later the Lord is going to rise from the dead. They don't realize that the death of Christ there at the cross, that that, that, that was God's plan uh, before the foundation of the world. They probably should have, but again, they can't in all the... We can see with clarity that they couldn't see. We have the Holy Spirit. They didn't. They're caught up in the emotion of the event, Right? Uh, the Messiah was uh, predicted to suffer all along. Remember Isaiah 53, Daniel 9, 26. They again culturally had a wrong understanding of the Messiah, thinking him to be some kind of conquering political king who was going to come overthrow Rome, establish his kingdom uh, and, and his throne immediately. Uh, but they failed to realize that the Old Testament predicted before the crown must come the cross. Before the crown must come the cross. The Lord will set up his earthly kingdom. It's not at his first coming, it's at his second coming, as the scripture uh, verifies. And then you'll remember last time we were together, we we're in chapter 16, as it's starting to come to an end, uh, the Lord is again affirming his Father's love for them. Verse 27 of chapter 16 The Father himself loves you. I told you those are pretty encouraging words, aren't they? The Father loves you. The Father loves you because now you're part of his family. The Father loves you. He's now no longer your judge. He's your Father in heaven. He's the one who loves you through me unconditionally, lavishly, generously. For the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. Again, they believe in Jesus' deity. They believe that he came from heaven to earth. You have believed that I came forth from the Father. Verse 28, I've come forth from the Father. I've come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. The disciples said, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative language. And then verse 30, which I told you is probably the most outward, straightforward outward uh, declaration of the deity of Christ. We know that now you know all things, right? We know now that you know all things. 
that's a claim of omniscience, a recognition of omniscience. Because the only one that knows all things is deity. And have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. And again, Jesus answered them, do we uh, answer them, do you now believe? I told you the verbs in the indicative. Uh, it's not the, in the interrogative. It's not in the form of questions. Most of the, uh, um, most of the translations have it in a form of a question. I, I think he's affirming their, their belief. A couple of you came up to me and I said, you know, I quoted out of uh, the NIV and I went back and looked and I quoted out of the NIV. I quoted out of the NIV 1984. Uh, you just probably need to be a little careful with the NIV. There was some major translation uh, changes. Uh, NIV is kind of a dynamic equivalent, kind of a uh, thought for thought versus a literal translation. In uh, 19... Uh, I can't remember, 2002, they made some updates. It's called the TNIV, the New, Interna- New International Version. And, and that one you probably need to stay away from. Uh, they, they made some um, uh, great uh, theological errors or inaccuracies. They, it, it's gender neutral to, to a certain extent, large extent. And, and so I'd probably not recommend that. Uh, so I don't know, maybe that's where the translation difference is. <laughs> Again, I looked in mine, it says, uh, in the Greek is probably what matters. It, it's, a, it, it's a statement of fact. I think he's just affirming, affirming uh, their, uh, their, their belief. And again, I told you the disciples, they, they believe uh, in Jesus. And while they believe in Jesus, uh, their faith is immature. Uh, Jesus knows what's coming. They don't. Uh, he, he tells them what's going to happen, how they're going to respond. Verse 32, Behold, an hour is coming, and it's already come for you to be scattered, each one to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. Right? When, when trouble shows up, these guys are going to run. Right? When trouble shows up, they're going to run. And then verse 33, just tremendously important, the last words that Christ speaks to his disciples before his arrest, crucifixion, uh, uh, to encourage their hearts. Verse 33, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you may have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Words of tremendous encouragement, words of triumph. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world you have tribulation. Look, let me tell you, fellas, I'm going to die. Not only am I going to die, but you're going to be hated. Persecution is coming for you. But in me you'll have peace. In me you're going to have victory. In the world you have tribulation. Take courage. Take heart. I have overcome the world. I told you the word world is in the KO. We would get in the culture Nike, and Nike actually... It uh, doesn't mean tennis shoes. Nike means total victory. It means total, abject, conquering victory, complete victory. And what's great about that word, it's in present active. So present active indicative. You say, what does that mean? It means this is currently the reality of how things are. Presently and actively as a statement of fact, take courage, I have overcome the world. Let me tell you, those are words of absolute hope. These are the last words that Jesus spoke before his crucifixion to his disciples, it is a word of hope. And I'm telling every one of us in the room, we need to put that someplace and remember that verse and, and, and bring that to mind often because we need to hold on to that reality, that truth, what Christ says in spite of the world that we live in and all the evil that is in the world. And listen, no matter what comes next, Christ is our victor. And I don't know if you've noticed, but the world's a little crazy in the days in which we live. 
us who are older are seeing things we never could even imagined we're seeing, and it's on like warp speed, and every day crazy gets crazier. No matter what happens in the world, no matter what happens next, there is one who has power over this world. There's one who has power over this present evil system, one who has defeated this world and its ruler through his perfect life, his substitutionary atoning death, the one who has paid the price for our sin, whose broken sins hold upon us, and through his resurrection, he has conquered sin, death, and the devil, and has demonstrated his power over sin, death, and the devil. And by his resurrection from the dead, he has declared for us and to the world our justification before God. Paul says in Romans 4, verse 25, he was delivered up because of our transgression. He was raised because of our justification. And in that great declaration of our right standing before God because of what Christ has done, he has taken us into another realm. And the realm is found in Romans 8, chapter uh, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. He has taken us into the realm of what? No condemnation. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Tremendous truths that we need to hold on to and believe and rest in. Christ is the victor, our victor. Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world you have tribulation. Take courage, I have overcome the cross. Or I have overcome the world. And again, this is the, he's saying all these things in the shadow of the cross. I have overcome the world. So literally, the, the cross figuratively, I mean, literally the cross is coming, but figuratively, in the shadow of the cross, it's looming just in a, in a couple hours. He's saying that which looks by the world standard is utter defeat is absolute victory in God through me. That's what he's saying. And again, we who know him, we who are loved by him, we need to hold on to those truths. We need to take our stand with him in victory. We need to cling to that love, that joy, that peace, that hope that Christ wants to give us through the cross. And again, the peace that Christ offers us because he has overcome the world. Now again, they had this great hope that Christ was trying to give to them. And what Christ said is absolutely true on the other side of the cross, the other side of the resurrection. And how much more so is it it on our side because all these great realities have happened. We live in a fallen world, a a world full of heartache and sadness and uncertainty. Uh, Circumstances around us are always changing. But we have a sure foundation. And it's not found in subjectivism. It's found in Christ. It's found in the Word of God. It's found in the person who is God over all. It's found in the one who is the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the one who's blessed forever, right? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all of these chapters, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and all the events that I've just kind of worked through kind of rapidly, that brings us to the capstone event, which is chapter 17. And again, this is the very last night that the Lord is with his disciples. It's the night of the Passover. Remember, it started with Passover earlier in, in the Thursday evening in the Passion Week. And literally, it's just all hours before the crucifixion. The Lord's been teaching, encouraging, admonishing. And again, the guys are having a little bit difficulty understanding and accepting everything that he's saying. Because they're so distraught with the fact that he's promised or he's told them the fact that he's leaving. Nevertheless, he continues throughout the evening to teach them. They've left the upper room. They've made their way through Jerusalem. They're 
uh, walking over towards the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to be aggra- uh, uh, arrested and then falsely accused and eventually murdered. But he teaches them. And I think he's still teaching them and teaching us when we come to this magnificent prayer in chapter 17. And I think we'll see that as we work our way through the verses. Now, one of the things that first comes up, the, one of the first um, issues of teaching, I guess, that comes to the surface is the need of prayer. I mean, who is Jesus Christ? Well, he's God in the flesh. He's the one, again, who's, who's sovereign over all. He's the one who knows all things. He's the one who rules over all things. He's the one who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. He, he is the one, according to John 1, who was in the beginning with the word, uh, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Him and his, in him was life, and, and uh, the life was the light of men. This is the one who's modeling for us when we go into chapter 17, the need for prayer, the necessity of prayer. If there was anybody on the planet who seemingly from a first look, if you will, probably didn't need to pray, it's probably this guy. But nevertheless, he does. He prays. He demonstrates the necessity of prayer. Because again, in his incarnation, he sets aside the free use or the prerogatives of his deity. He submits himself to the Father. And in that act of submission... He prays that the Father would fulfill His will in everything that He has promised. And again, as many have noted, if God is sovereign over all, and He is, and He is in a position of depending on the Father to fulfill all of His promises, to fulfill all of His words, if this one who is God over all, sovereign, the Son of God, is dependent on God, how much more should we be, right? How much more should we be dependent on the person of God, we who are frail, we who are sinful, human beings how much do we need god's power through prayer you look in the new testament you see in the book of acts uh, when the the men were called to minister the word the apostles were given two things they're given prayer and the ministry of the word and god was saying look you need both you can't just preach truth you need to have you need to have power from the person of the holy spirit himself to activate the word of god in the lives of the hearers and in your own life our own lives if we're going to hear and understand god's truth because again, apart from the regenerating power, the work of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit in the Word of God, we're going to have a difficult time understanding because most of what we're going to study apart from the Word of God, apart from the power of God, is going to fall on deaf ears. We need God's power. We need to pray. So again, we're coming to the chapter 17. It's uh, uh, the shadow of the, the cross. Uh, our Lord Jesus Christ is with His disciples, and He's going to focus on them, and He's going to focus on His glory and the glory of the Father. Now, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ prayed often, prayed moment by moment. We know that since he is God, we understand there's a certain communion between he and the Father that was never broken until that moment where he was bearing the sin of the world. So we know in a certain sense that Christ was always in communion, continual communion uh, with the Father, always in an attitude of prayer, if you will. And, but we have the example here uh, of this text, of this audible prayer and we have many examples in the new testament when when christ prayed audibly uh, at his baptism during the preaching uh, when he first went on his first preaching tour if you will before the choosing of the 12 before and after feeding the five thousand, uh, peter's confession on him as the christ at the transfiguration he prayed at the raising of lazarus uh, uh, from the dead he prayed at the uh, at the at the uh, reality of the cross the last supper garden gethsemane etc and so forth but what we don't have is anywhere in the New Testament 
is a record of what Christ prayed for in any extended length until you come to chapter 17. So what we have in the most part is just short little phrases, short little snippets. And again, another reason why this is such a wonderful portion of, square, uh, of Scripture is God in His kindness has made sure that it's written down, that we might know it, have it, be encouraged by it. Again, the longest recorded prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ when He was on the earth. Now, when you come to John 17, this is what no, is known by many as, listen, this is the real Lord's Prayer. This is the real Lord's Prayer. Sometimes John 17 is referred to as the high priestly prayer. What is commonly mislabeled as the Lord's Prayer back in Matthew 6 is what the Lord taught his disciples to pray. This is the model for them how to pray. Matthew 6 is not something that the Lord Jesus would have prayed because he would never have prayed, forgive us our sins or forgive us our trespasses, right? Because he had no sin. So that Matthew 6 passage is really for the disciples. And he said, teach us how to pray. And he said, okay, you guys pray like this. But you come to John 17, this really is the Lord's Prayer. And it comes right here at the end of the earthly ministry of Christ and it's looking forward to what follows for him after his earthly ministry, that's his heavenly ministry. The ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ interceding always before his uh, people for us, before the throne of God. Now again, Jesus could have prayed this prayer silently, but he didn't do that. He prayed it openly, he prayed it audibly because he wanted his disciples to hear. He wanted them to hear the prayer. And he wanted it recorded through uh, John, you know, in the Holy Spirit, he wanted it recorded so that we could hear it and have it also, so that we could understand the great hope, the great help, the resources that we have um, from God through the person of Christ, so that we could have an understanding of what Christ is doing as he intercedes for us. One, one uh, commentator said this, and I thought it was really uh, eye-opening. He said, we have four Gospels that tell us of the life of Christ for the 33 years that he was on earth, but only one chapter that tells us what he is doing now and what he has been doing for the last 2,000 years and will continue to do until redemption is complete. That's a good way to look at John 17. Right, here, here's a picture of the exalted Christ who lives to make intercession for his people. Exactly what Christ is doing now, exactly what he's been doing for the last 2,000 years, exactly what he'll do until redemption is complete and Christ returns. Now there's a lot in the text, right? There's a lot in the chapter chapter breaks down very nicely into three parts. Verses 1 through 5, verses 6 through 19, verses 20 through 26. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples. And in verses 20 through 26, he's going to pray for all believers that would come to him throughout all the centuries, all that would follow him praying for the church. Five petitions in this chapter, one for himself, four for his disciples. All right, so let's kind of just start to dig in here a bit in the time we have. John 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So Jesus spoke these things again, all that he had said to them, all that he had promised them this last evening on the previous four chapters, uh, again, including his declaration of absolute victory over the world and for this to happen for this declaration of absolute victory to happen he immediately jesus immediately turns in submissive dependence upon the one who could ensure that triumph he turns to his father in heaven the great commentator godet says to transform the victory which was announced into a present reality nothing less was needed than the action of the omnipotence of god 
And it is to Him that Jesus turns. Jesus spoke these things. And again, He does it openly, audibly. In the presence of the disciples so that they might know their place in His affection for them. That they might be assured of Christ's influence with the Father and that influence would be employed for their good. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up His eyes to heaven. He acknowledges in that kind of symbolic gesture, that body posture position, uh, that really the, not only where God is in the heavens, but he's really, it's a recognition of God's majesty. It's a recognition of God's excellence. The psalmist in Psalm 123 verse 1 says, To you I lift up my eyes. You are the, enthroned, the one who is enthroned in the heavens. David, Psalm 25 verse 1, To thee, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Verse 15 of that chapter, My eyes are continually towards the Lord. Arthur Pink says the posture signifies not only confidence in God, as he says there can be real no, no real prayer until there's a turning away from all creature dependencies. He quotes again out of Psalm 121 this time, 121 verse 1, I'll lift up my eyes to the mountains where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. And, and Pink says this, the believer looks around and finds no ground for help. His relief has to come from God above. So the gesture by looking up is, is again emblematic of the uh, understanding of there's no help except from God. Men aren't going to help me. Men aren't going to help you, my dear friends. Your only hope and your only help comes from God. Jesus lifts up his eyes to heaven. He has great confidence to do that because he's the sinless one, right? Because of his stature before God. And he begins this high priestly prayer. He begins by praying for himself and he prays for his glory. Now the glory of Christ is a main theme in the Gospel of John. John mentions either glory or to glorify Christ no fewer than 42 times. And that's how this begins. Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So again, he begins by addressing God as Father. This is something we've spoken of numerous times in our study of John. It's a title that Jesus used repeatedly throughout his ministry, signifying that he was equal with God himself. John 5, verse 18, the Jews wanted to kill him because Jesus had called, him, had called God in heaven my Father. John 5, verse 18, for this cause, uh, therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. John ten thirty, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. So again, there is an equality because God is God and Jesus is God. And by Jesus calling God the Father, God in heaven the Father, he's also distinguishing himself from the Father. He's making it evident that he's not praying to himself. He's praying to the first member of, of the Godhead. Uh, again, we talked about this when we went through this material earlier, but he's really underscoring that theological distinction that is important, that the Son is equal to the Father, yet distinct from him. And he is equal in essence, uh, he shares God's eternal glory, but the Son is a distinct person within the Godhead. So Jesus, by using the title Father, addressing God, is underscoring the fundamental reality biblically taught of the Trinity. He's pointing out the error of modalism. We talked about that. 
right? That Jesus just appeared in the mode of the Father, the mode of the Son, the mode of the... No, that, that's a tremendous error. Jesus is praying to another person because there is another person. He is a distinct person. Jesus is a distinct person from the Father. And when he uses the title Father, he's also using it to speak of the intimate fellowship that the Lord enjoyed with God the Father, a familial fellowship. And, and again, in the day of, uh, of, of this text, in the day of Judaism, uh, Judea- <coughs> excuse me, Judaism knew nothing of this. Judaism might employ uh, plural pronouns like God is our Father. But Jesus says, no, he's my Father. In fact, Jesus used that phraseology, my Father, at least 32 times in the New Testament. I, I went and counted him. Again, something unheard of in, in, the, in the time of Christ. And, and through Christ... Anyone who believes in him is invited to be granted that same spiritual intimacy with the God of the universe. John 14, 21, who, he who loves me shall be what? Loved by my Father. Again, the Jews, Christ is blowing their mind. They, they, they don't understand it because they don't know who he is. But it's not blasphemy for Jesus to say that, Jesus, that the God in heaven is my Father because that's reality. Co-equal, co-eternal intimate in fellowship my father and, and again that familial familiar lay, uh, relationship a familiar family relationship and again it speaks of the eternal relationship that he has john one and one again in the beginning was the word and the word was with god it's proston theon it's face to face with god the word Christ was with God face to face. The Word was God, and the Word and and He was in the beginning with God. This eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. And then Jesus says this: Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said to the Father, "This tremendous statement: The hour has come. The hour has come." Now, up to this point in the ministry of Jesus, he'd been saying for a long time that his hour had not yet come. When his mother asked him to do something at the, about the wine at the marriage feast there, right, in Canaan, Galilee, John 2, verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what have I to do with you? My hour has not yet come. He said the same things to his brothers who were criticizing him for not going up to the feast to Jerusalem, uh, he said it a little bit different, but the same idea. John 7, verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time is not yet at hand. On another occasion, when his enemies sought to seek him, and to, to, to kill him, they wanted to take him. They couldn't do it. John 7, verse 30, they were seeking, therefore, to seize him. And no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8, verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury and taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. But when you come to John chapter 12, which is at the beginning of Passion Week, Jesus says this, John chapter 12, verse 23, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Verse 27 
Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Verse 32, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw unto myself. He was saying this to indicate the kind of death that he was about to die. Right? So at the beginning of the Passion Week, John chapter 12, Jesus says, now my hour has come. You see the same thing when you go to John chapter 13, same phraseology, John 13 verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of the world to the Father. John 16, verse 32, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come where you will be scattered each to his own home and leave me alone. Right? So the hour has now come. It's a very interesting uh, uh, phrase, uh, a very important statement over in Luke 22, verse 53. uh, When the authorities uh, come to arrest Jesus there in the garden, uh, he turns towards those who, uh, uh, who are against him, those who hated him. Uh, Luke 22, verse 53, he says, While I was with you daily in the temple, you didn't lay your hand on me. Right? That's true. But then he says this, But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. It's a fascinating portion of Scripture. When those who hate Christ come to the garden and arrest him, this hour and the power of darkness is yours. I think it indicates that this hour would have never come to pass if it was not for the power of darkness. So what makes this hour necessary, what makes this hour essential is the problem of sin, the problem of evil, the problem of Satan, the problem of hell. Because this hour that is upcoming as we're anticipating the cross, this hour has been produced by Satan, sin, and evil. Therefore, God has to deal with it. God has to overcome it. And nothing could ever deal with the question of sin and evil except the love of God and the forgiveness of God through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this moment that's coming, this hour that's upcoming, this hour of evil, it looks like it's going to overcome Christ, but the truth is, by the power of God, through the Son of God, that same hour is going to be turned into the hour of Christ's glory as the Father is going to fill the request and glorify Christ in that hour. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven said to the Father, the hour has come. Just a couple observations further. That means that the hour was obviously predetermined. The hour has come. It was predetermined. Oh, because again, all the times previously it said my hour has not come. Because all those other times, he said, look, there's a predetermined hour, a predetermined time, a special time that's coming in the future, and the Lord was always looking forward to this hour. There's an expectation about this hour that has come. And again, this hour obviously has to do with the cross, which tells us that sin did not take our God by surprise. There is an eternal plan in motion set forth in time the plan of salvation to deal with the issue of sin and evil. A plan that entails sending the second person of the Trinity from heaven into time, from from glory to this earth, one who will come in this hour specifically to die. A specific death, a atoning propitiatory death on Calvary's cross. 
And apart from that death and apart from belief in that person who dies on that cross in that hour, no one can be saved. And I say this with the greatest of reverence, but not even God Himself can forgive a man apart from this hour, this hour that has come. Let me set your compass in the right direction. This hour that is upcoming, this hour that is upcoming is the most important moment of human history. Nothing else. Nothing else that has happened, nothing else that will happen. This is the greatest moment of human history. This hour that is upcoming is the most crucial moment, the most momentous hour since the beginning of the world. The events that take place there are going to determine everything. So the greatest, most climatic event that has ever taken place in the history of the world the events around, surrounding the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, sadly, most men could care less. Most men reject it in total. Most men forget it completely to their eternal horror. Father, the hour has come. All that the Old Testament prophets looked forward to, they looked to this hour. All of the types, all of the shadows, all of the sacrifices, all of that would come to fruition there at the cross in that hour. There's no forgiveness of sin. There's no reconciliation. There's no new life apart from that hour that has come. Again, back in John chapter 12, which again is at the beginning of the Passion Week, Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Then he says, my soul has become troubled. What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. The the Lord could have said no. Could have said no to the hour. And then... God would have had to pour out his wrath upon us for our sin and he would have to have done it for all eternity because we can never atone for our sin against an eternal holy God. If Christ had said no to the hour, then we would suffer eternally. And that would be justice. But the Lord Jesus Christ left heaven and came into this earth, to this world, out of his love for this specific hour. That very hour, that very moment when God made him who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That specific hour designated before the foundation of the world where God in his kindness would write down the names of all whom this crucifixion would be an effective sacrifice securing their eternal salvation. This very hour is the greatest moment of human history. And it's this great event where time and eternity meet. The greatest event of the ages. Eternity past, eternity future. Meet together at the cross. Where the Son will suffer and die. Where the Son will end His humiliation. Terminate His labor. As He becomes the sacrifice for sin that He has been eternally ordained to carry out. 
this hour. The hour has come. And again, the only way that we could ever be saved from the wrath of God is if our punishment is poured out upon Christ as our substitute in that hour, and Christ says, I've come for this very hour. Think on that when you're discouraged. Think about on that when you're sad about your life and you're having a difficult time. Think about how much encouragement that is that Christ left the courts of heaven to incarnate himself, to be our substitute, to take the punishment due us out of his tremendous love for us. And he said, look, I came from eternity in time for this hour. Love to the Father. Love to the Son. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven... He said, Father, the hour has come. Here it is. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So again, the time of the Lord's death is at hand. Is acknowledging that. The, the Lord is asking the Father to support Him at the time of the cross, enable Him to complete the work the Father had, had given Him to do. And again, the Son's purpose in the world was always to glorify the Father. Always to perfectly submit Himself to the will of the Father in every aspect of His life all the way to the end. J.C. Ryle says this to the request of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Father, glorify your Son. Ryle says, I think the meaning of the sentence must be this. Give glory to your Son by carrying Him through the cross and the grave to triumph in the completion of the work He came to do and by placing Him at your right hand and highly exalting Him above every name that is named. Do this in order that He may glorify you and your attributes. Do this that He may bring fresh glory to your holiness and justice and mercy and faithfulness and prove to the world that you are a just and a holy God, a merciful God, and a God that keeps His word. My vicarious death and my resurrection will prove this and bring glory to you. Finish a mighty work. Glorify me, and in so doing, glorify yourself. Finish your work, not less that your Son may glorify you by bringing many redeemed souls to heaven to the glory of your grace. Isn't that good? Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said to the Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Death by way of crucifixion was the most shameful of deaths. And what would seem to be to the disciples the worst possible outcome for Jesus and for them ultimately is going to be the Lord's greatest victory and the greatest display of the infinite glory of God in Christ. The eternal triumph of love by the Lord Jesus Christ by the Father in heaven for those who repent and place their faith upon him. So the events of the cross are going to be exactly as Jesus said back in 1620. Truly, truly, I say you will weep, lament, the world will rejoice, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into what? Joy. Eternal joy. Therefore, as the writer of the book of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 2, we should be fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're just getting started. That was just a little bit of intro. As we get to see the Lord speak directly to his Father, we have the great privilege of coming with Christ into the very throne room of God.
All right? Don't forget Sunday school hour. You need to be there. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this time in your word. Thank you for this wonderful, wonderful portion of scripture. What a great privilege we have to study it. And we're so thankful that you left it for us so that we can do that. We just want to glorify you, our God, and glorify Christ, our Savior. And thank you for giving us an opportunity to point to both of you and to point to your glory and your great love in the study of this word. Thank you for encouraging our hearts. And may we walk in these truths, uh, being encouraged as you desire us to be. We love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.